Welcome to season four of Invents Podcasts, which we are calling Innovation Deciphered. We're extremely excited about this new season. We hope you are ready to embark on this new journey with us. From now on, you can expect a new episode every fortnight, which will dive into everything surrounding innovation and really talk about what it means to innovate in your company. Innovation has always been part of the DNA at Invent. We've helped many uncover and identify their advancements. But since achieving the innovation management kite mark and truly diving into our own internal innovation journey, we have recognised an opportunity to help individuals and companies understand the true meaning behind successful innovation and how to prevent good ideas from slipping through the cracks. Ultimately, we want to help you decipher the immense value of successful innovation. So without further ado, this is episode one of the Innovation Deciphered. can seem at first to be a little fruitless or creating process for the sake of process. Our hope, as we've shown with a number of our clients, is that when done well, it can create value across an organisation. A leader in the construction industry that demonstrates this success is High Speed 2. In this episode, we welcome Howard Mitchell, Head of Innovation at High Speed 2, who shares with us the importance of culture, process and having a clear strategic objective, focusing efforts across their supply chain. Hi Howard, and thanks for coming on the podcast today. Uh, so Howard, you're the Head of Innovation at iSpeed2, which as we all know is this magnificent transport project, going from London to Birmingham and beyond. Uh, can you just give us a quick overview of how innovation's working at a very high level? Yeah, sure. So thanks for having me. Um, yeah, innovation at HS2 at the moment is... Uh, We've really been running since notice to proceed in anger in terms of actually boots on the ground innovation, running real real world projects. Uh, we've got about 208 active projects at the moment, so quite a big portfolio. And we look at that from really sort of early stage innovation, so universities type stuff, low TRL levels, all the way through to... Um, things that are very close to being adopted, in fact, and have actually got some new technologies adopted on the construction environment at the moment. And we also then look at you know, some innovations for the 200, 300 year old uh, excavation of remains that, at St. James's Garden, so how we can digitize those processes, all the way through to some things like um, AI or quantum sensing for void detection. And so it's a really broad program, lots of things going on, but uh, very, very interesting. I mean, it sounds massive in scope. Uh, what interests us as innovation management practitioners is that the people who are doing the innovation, they're, they're a broad range of stakeholders, I guess. Yeah, so we have a set way of doing a project. And collaboratively is the only way you're going to get it to work really and we focus on the first mantra we have is innovation is a delivery function so it's not strategic it shouldn't be too fluffy you, you innovation finishes once you've got it on site and in BAU and the only way you can really do that is have a number of different people at the table working on it so it doesn't get 
developed in a dark room by an individual because that will be flawed so the diversity of opinions coming into that so in any project we will usually have an academic institution as well as a tier one contractor we invite startups in quite a lot um, as well as people from within the industry on the client and, and contracting side. So with all those different sort of stakeholders, that's a broad range of cultures, perspectives, but also motivations. Um, so, you know, the key thing for good collaboration is that everyone's sort of pointing towards the same end goal, a, a similar sort of reward. How do you make sure that you align everyone together? Yeah, so I think you have to be pretty clear. And as a client, we hold that client leadership position very, very firmly and sort of say, we want to innovate for these reasons and those reasons are around productivity. So how we can improve the industry and leave a legacy behind in terms of how effective we are at building mega projects. Uh, carbon is the second one. So removing carbon in the design construction and operation of the, the, the railway going forward. So we get aligned interests early by being quite specific in the types of innovation that we're looking for. And we're also very clear that we, we do that in an open way. So we're not about driving innovation of an individual company and their IP so that that can't be shared. If something is not suitable to be shared across the entire part of our programme, Whilst it's probably great innovation, but it's not the type of innovation that we as a mega project want to run. We want to do things, prove them out, and then scale them as much as we possibly can. So you've got very clear, set, and shared strategic objectives. Yeah, so upfront, open uh, innovation questions set down on the, the, the specific needs of the organisation and programme. Yeah. And how has that evolved as the projects evolved? Because like you say, it started as a function, early doors, but now you're on-site building. Soon you'll be starting, or you've probably already started, thinking about the operation and maintenance of the project. I mean, your innovation objectives must be constantly evolving, changing, hard to stay focused at times? Um, yeah, so it's, it's a portfolio and you have to treat it almost as a fund manager would look at a portfolio and that at any point in time there are you know, staples so efficiency on site your ability to uh, deliver the program as we've set out to do but new challenges come in uh, all the time uh, new sort of political influences of, often as well but then as certain areas of the program mature you need to be ready for those other parts that are coming on so you have to have that one eye on the horizon so yes certainly now we're looking at our uh, operational asset maintenance uh, customer experience so wayfinding in stations when we just got notice to proceed that was on the list but the priority of it was much lower but we've in the last 12 months started doing active projects to try and understand these things more so it's about understanding the evolution of the program as well as those external influences on the products that you choose to sit in that portfolio. You don't always get it right, but on the whole, your portfolio needs to be meeting the needs of the program. Hmm. So I'm really interested about this massive portfolio. Yeah. How, how, how does a, a project get into the portfolio? Does somebody obviously has to sponsor it, I guess, 
come up with the idea? How, how do you get the ideation going? So ideas, uh, we've got lots of ideas, and ideas are a very sort of uh, numerate currency that everyone has one, and it's no value until you've landed it. Um, how that works, we run quite often active challenges where we will go and speak not just to our contractors, but we have an open innovation platform where people can submit things, but we also run specific challenges. So we may say we would like to digitise the logistics process or something like that, and people come up with new ideas and, and ways to help. Initially, we can filter and understand those, so that's something that we do as a team. Uh, with help from uh, subject matter experts in the business. Once that's got through a, a cursory test of have we done it before, what is, does this hold value, we then put it into a more formal gated process which is akin to Bayes or Innovate UK where you have an initial, initial look at it, see if it's value but then you have to go away and quantify it and that's a discipline that people in innovation get wrong sometimes and that is if you can't quantify it or at least have a go or a hypothesis a hypothesis of quantifying it is not ready to be funded and so what we then start to do is challenge them more in a, an open process and bring expertise in that gets to something called an innovation execution plan which comes with a very detailed business case sort of trying to quantify what that value is and then you get a senior level sponsor who either buys it or they don't. Mm -hmm. Once you have that sponsorship, then you're ready to start. And this sponsorship's somebody within high speed too? Um, or is it just one of the stakeholders? Generally, it's a member of the HS2, either technical or leadership. So it's a senior leader from within uh, the HS2 organisation. And by sponsorship, that is by name, not necessarily financially. The quantifying is sort of an interesting bit because um, I think you're right in terms of people find it hard to do that but I think part of that is because people don't often know what to quantify because some of the benefits can be um, sort of externalities indirectly created by yeah. what you're trying to do. So how do you, what are you generally trying to quantify um, or is it just a straight sort of ROI type model that you have? So it's not there's a, a few different parameters that we quantify in that. Um, one is a discounted cash flow model, which understands the necessary hurdle of investment mm -hmm. before you can start to recognise value. On long programmes, that is a, a really valuable way of looking at things. So, for example, uh, a, tr a piece of train-based software. Great innovation, and actually we could sell it to lots of people as a great idea and something we should be doing. But if I look at the discount rate for software, seven years, and then we won't actually be running those, well, the trains won't be running, not that we're running them, but the trains won't be running for longer than that. In which case, why would we be driving that innovation now when we can actually take that investment and put it into a piece of construction technology where within two to three years I can actually start to generate a saving on the programme. So that's the financial element. We also then look at the legacy elements of what we leave behind in terms of changes to standards or safety or British standards and way we design or do something. So that multiplies the value to every project that comes after HS2. 
or where we've changed the safety standard by using a new technology to really keep people safe. So those elements we need to bake in and capture and then share them out through things like the I3P network or Transport Research and Innovation Board. So all of those things are part of that process for the innovation execution plan. And yeah, the value of those, sometimes you can use Greenbook and you can use other models. And then sometimes you just really have to have a hypothesis and go, I think it will, you know, we could get an extra 30 people employed if this is successful. So. Yeah, but, it, but it all ties in to your objectives, your strategy, your overarching. Yeah. And that's something that I think um, you know, we've experienced ourselves and with a number of our clients that we help is helping them understand that you need clarity in what you're trying to achieve, yes. whether that is hypothetical or more structured and hard facts of I, I need to save this yeah without that you, you know you're it ends up you're just playing a little bit rather than innovating if you're not careful which I think is quite reductive for innovation as a broader concept because you lose the support of your chief engineer mm. or people because they think it's a nice idea how does it affect me and if at that senior level I mentioned they're not bought into it don't start yeah, yeah. I mean, Google Glass is a great example of a good idea that had no reason within Google and no support. So after spending an awful lot of money, it died. Yeah, indeed. But there is a good idea there that just didn't have that framework and that strategic objective that it was being focused on. Yeah, and I think it's brave to sometimes try and start some of these things. I think the art form is stopping it. Before yeah. you've spent billions. <laughs> yeah, knowing when to stop is as good a, a, a good a life lesson as knowing when to start. Indeed, yeah. Uh, and sure, I mean, that must be manifesting itself in the projects that are in your portfolio because what's the typical lifespan of a, or life cycle of a project? Is it six months or 18 months? It varies. So um, we've got two sort of broad categories of projects. Um, you've got smaller discovery projects which are very much more your fail fast type mechanism where you can get involved. What I find with a lot of innovation discussions is you've got opinions and, and uh, sales pitches at the table rather than any real data and you can't make an objective decision when you've got on one side of the spectrum someone who's probably personally challenged by something or somebody who's going to earn money off the sale of it because you've got a lot of bias in there and a lot of people don't really trust either story. So by having something small that you can do quickly, you can start to get real data and information about something. The beauty of being a client in this space is you don't have to, you can back multiple horses, so you could try two, two or three different things because you know that the business case can justify a slight you know, um, uh, initial spend up front to really make the right choice. Then when you've got that data, you can build that project into a slightly bigger one. So um, of the portfolio, you may have a few months of discovery, finding things, getting real world data or testing something before you move into the, the strategic phase of growing that project. I mean, we were talking about this um, earlier, this idea around, you know, proof of concept, MVP type, the, you know, things that you hear a lot about in technology and the likes and actually you know you can apply that a lot easier into construction than you realize especially with BIM models and things like that you can do a proof of concept of an engineering solution quite 
I won't say easily, I won't upset any engineers out there, but the, the process of really readily, 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 yeah. readily available solution. Um, you know, these things that we can learn, yeah. um, you know, it's very easy to focus on the blockers of innovation. That's what we talk a lot about, yeah. rather than actually what are the enablers and how can we grow and how can we get from those little ideas to and test and grow. Yeah, and we often have a, another thing that we, we constantly talk about and people say, well, how do we become an innovative organisation? The answer is you, you do innovation. Um, in many organisations, you've got more people administering or talking about innovation than you have doing it. Mm. And so therefore, as long as that dialogue continues, you, you're just you know, uh, observing the problem. You're never actually hands-on solving it. So you need a degree of bravery to go, now we start, we're mm. going to do. And that you know that at the end of that first three months of discovery, you've got more information, you've got something that's real, not an opinion. Uh, and then if it's not good, being also brave enough to go, sorry, yeah. we're going to kill it. And is your portfolio of 208 <laughs> projects, is that growing? Has it reached the peak or is it on um, the way down? So it, it grows because the scope of the program is continually growing, but some of those projects we are bundling together. So um, within that we may have 12 projects around concrete or reinforcing steel. Actually what will happen is that just becomes a macro project looking at reinforcing concrete and that has subcomponents. So it's it's hard to put an exact quantum but it changes over time as you can imagine we're constantly looking for new ideas to solve challenges within the program we're just starting to look a lot around process and digitization data transfer communication but then some of the more technical elements of the construction environment um, are less important than they were 18 months ago so it changes. It's ever evolving. Yeah. Now, the other thing I'm interested in, because this is a, a, yeah. a portfolio of projects that you're running with various stakeholders. Presumably, there's some money for some of them, others are self-funding it, and there's a you're corralling it, for want of a better word, managing it from a higher level. I've also seen that ISB2 set up a, a VC organisation? So we're in the process of evaluating. So we have um, quite a successful uh, startup accelerator that's been now running for two years. I think we're on fifth cohort uh, where we bring in startup companies and startup companies have a tough time in construction. It's a very complicated industry yeah, dominated by some big players. Um, and so what we try and do is actually, as a client, exhibit client leadership and pull them up mm-hmm. and go, well, this is, we, HS2 will sponsor you and then push them into the supply chain. And that way you get great traction. What we've started to notice is it's quite, it's also quite difficult for them to get funded. So the concept that we're working with government at the moment on is trying to understand the feasibility of us actually taking a more proactive relationship not dissimilar to something like High Tech Wonder Fund or 
DARPA, who's a massive US mm. example, where you actually align the interest of the public and private sector in self-funding innovation via startup companies. So that's a really exciting concept, something we're investigating at the moment. I think I was involved in that first cohort. I think I gave a talk on structuring the industry or yeah. something to a few interesting businesses, I seem to remember. It's during the lockdown, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And so the one of the, the companies from that cohort that you would have spoken to is a team called Sensat. Yes. Doing incredibly well, just secured Series B funding um, and continuing to grow with some really very, very smart technology. Just sort of proving that there's space for these companies to come and it's not it's not taking anyone else's lunch. What it's doing is mm. they're bringing new things to the industry and disrupting, but actually the interest, our interest as a client and the con uh, contractors completely aligned because they've got a much better view of their site, what's going on, the accuracy of the information. So they've done a great job. Yeah, I mean that is a very exciting idea because, like you say, securing funding um, is generally one of the hardest things for yeah. startups. But then when you add in the, um, I hate to use the term dislike, but you know construction isn't exactly an attractive industry uh, for that external um, uh, funding either, is it? So you know if you can help not only. Uh, secure better and more funding, but also change hopefully uh, the more general perception of construction and um, and then increase the ability to um, attract more funding. Then that's a, a win for everyone. Yeah, completely. And uh, you were starting to get major contractors interested in funding innovation themselves, but also because funding is available, you're getting new startups joining. So you're getting a better ecosystem. You're almost building like a cluster of great ideas that may traditionally have been interested in our sector, but actually gone, it's going to be easier if I go into fintech because mm -hmm. I know the money's available and the sales cycle's not as long and it's not as painful a journey. So we need to secure some of this great technology for our sector. Why do you think that's a, I mean, you're completely correct, but why do you think it is such a painful journey? I think it's because of the complexity of the environments we build. So if you look within HS2, we have a client, but then you have joint ventures, and the joint ventures are a mix of three major contractors, and then you may have four or five layers of supply chain all on those sites as well. And so you have a very complicated contractual environment. And then you combine that with, we also have a real, like a physical job to do, and that you can't upload a viaduct into the cloud, you have to build it. And so there is still a need for the big machinery, there's still a need for lots of things to happen that are not as sort of open to digitization because they're critical path, they've been happening for a long time. And it's about slowly but surely moving those two worlds together. But if you look at banking and software, you can build a fully digital bank, but you can't build a di fully digital railway. You still have to have the physical elements there and, and someone still has to have a piling rig and a cement mm -hmm. truck. Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of the things we hear all the time 
because we get businesses approach us who want to get into the construction sector. It's, it's one of those things that people can understand what it does. Yeah. Because everyone knows what a railway looks like or a building. But the complexity of the marketplace and how it's structured, yeah. uh, obviously, is a, it's a barrier, I think. Definitely. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree. It, we coach the startups that come in and they have an hour just learning on how to bid for a project and what their role in that could be and it's really you know they come out of it and their minds are blown a little <laughs> bit because they're like I didn't have I had no idea uh, how complicated it was and it may also be 12 to 18 months before mm. they find out if that bid's been successful which is quite difficult. Well, one of the aspects of dealing with construction if you're a supplier is that you have not got control of the sales process compared with mm. if you're doing a uh, uh, if you're selling by you know, if you're selling software for instance you can control the process to a degree yeah uh, but when you're dealing with the construction industry someone else is controlling the sales process and that a it's a longer sales cycle but it makes it much more difficult yeah yeah and, and also I think something that we're starting to see is actually there are opportunities even when you're post bid so companies still need technology all the way through and can procure locally but there is a bit of a perception there as in that contract's let the opportunities passed and actually our contractors are saying that's not the case at all we still need to continually procure throughout that contract so. that leads me on to another question because there's a there's a well-known concept in uh, construction it's called the McLeamy curve I'm sure you know it which is around if you're going to change design during the development stage of a project you the cost implications much lower and the value implications much higher and the longer you leave it yeah it, it goes the other way so any change late in the day has got a massive cost implication and doesn't have very much value do you sense there's a similar curve for innovation in the project environment like high speed two? Uh, yeah, without without a shadow of a doubt. I think there's a, a pre and post design. We always call it the shadow. The shadow is much bigger pre design because, especially for things like carbon, if you can get in before the uh, assets being designed, you're not in the space of material. Uh, innovation which is quite expensive you know you're decarbonizing cement is a big big uh, money pit whereas if you're involved in the design where you can use things you can be smart with how you design you can use multiple iterations we've got a project at the moment that's sort of starting to pull together more digital systems so whereas before you may only get two code approved designs for a viaduct or a bridge you can actually run much the same as they do in automotive. You can run multiple variations and say, let's strip all of the carbon out, what's the cost? And then find that happy medium. And that way you can have a much bigger shadow. Whereas if you've got your design and you're just sort of on the gate going, how do we do something here? It's much harder, but it's not completely insurmountable. So 
because we've been around for such a long time, there are a lot of processes which we think are optimised that aren't. And if you bring some of the automotive or the Kanban kind of methodology into a big linear project, you can actually start to improve how you operate. Um, whether that's sort of putting GPS on every vehicle or every site vehicle, actually doing time and motion capture of how excavation chains are working, all those kind of things are still up for grabs. But you're right, if you want to make the biggest savings, you've got to go early. The, um, there's also not just the cost implications, but the cultural implications, I guess, get harder as well. You know, the once you're on site, this is how I do it. And then if you're told to do it in a different way, it's harder rather than in that design phase where you alter possibly the team that gets on site because of the way you change the, the design. Yeah. So the, the shadow, like you say, it can alter not just the what you're building, but how you're building it and the who you're going to build it with yeah. in a much greater way. And also how you procure it. How you procure it, yeah. yeah which is also another area of you know, massive optimization within the industry. Yeah, it's only slightly inefficient. <laughs> so how? <coughs> Got 208 projects. How do you think you'll have by the time the, the trains start running? So the way things are going, I'll have more, but probably not many more. I think what is happening, what I'm starting to see happening, as I said, was the consolidation of some of those projects into bigger projects and we're killing things off because it just doesn't work and that's mm. something you've got to be willing to do with innovation. The trend that we're starting to see in the latter phases of the project is you know, back to our previous conversation. Fewer projects but with bigger impact. So if I look at the, some of the latter phases of the project which are, are currently in design we won't do as many, but with the ones we will do will be more far-reaching. Whereas in the current phase of the project, we're looking at a number of interventions or across lots of areas that have um, challenges. So I don't think it's going to go much north, and I also think it will change its nature. Yeah. But the scale will remain the same, but just the numbers will sort of move around, I think. Just sort of final question that all of these projects start with an idea and someone who's waving the flag saying I've had a great idea. What's is it the culture of high speed too that has enabled those ideas to move towards fruition or is it process or is it it has to be both. Um, I see it a lot that any number of consultants will sell you a brilliant foolproof innovation process that duly fails. And the process is a hygiene factor of innovation because you have to have people that you've empowered enough to, to make a change. And you have to be brave enough to give them some money and go give it a go. You need more people doing projects than talking about them and those people need to have that feedback loop that I had an idea, I've done something and it's had an impact. 
if not people just feel that they're throwing ideas into a machine and they stop because they never get that that feedback the culture has to be then open to them going this didn't work and I, I've spent the money and you go that's fine because in that portfolio effect that I've mentioned you've got some over here that are but rewarding those people with the good ideas is really important but then you have to build a team around them because a good idea people may not be great delivery people and vice versa so that collaborative approach is really important so to answer your question somewhat politically on that the process is a hygiene factor the culture is the essential part to deliver anything well Howard on that note uh, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on this the first edition of uh, Innovation Deciphered the fourth season of our podcast thank you very much for coming and good luck with the rest of the project brilliant thanks for having me thank you very much cheers